But I think you'll see in, in 2021, you know, a lot of SPACs have 12, 18 to 24 months to buy a company, right? And then they have to return the money that's held in escrow back to the original investors. No one wants to do that. So um, the ones that all got set up this autumn, in 12 months time next autumn, there's going to be an awful lot of pressure from the sponsors to not give the money back and they will start doing deals. You're listening to Sports Tech Feed, the global sports technology podcast. Hello and welcome to Sports Tech Feed. I'm your host, Thomas Loams. Great to have you join us again this week. On today's show, we have Michael Brunton, partner at Acceleration Equity. Now, I'm hoping Michael will be very familiar to most of our listeners. If you're not familiar with him, then you definitely need to start following him on LinkedIn. He's an absolute authority in the world of sports technology, especially in the investment space. Uh, His LinkedIn's great. He does a lot of uh, feature videos and talking about all sorts of stuff in the industry. And that's really backed up by his professional experience, which was most recently as a senior advisor, business technology, innovation and investment strategy at FIFA, where he was accountable for the strategic relationships with the major tech and data companies, and also sat on the steering committee regarding esports and gaming. Prior to that, he was responsible for founding and managing Europe's first investment vehicle focused on the sports industry. And as we mentioned in the interview, was one of the first people to look at doing a SPAC focused on sports. And if you don't know what a SPAC is, then definitely tune in for that in the interview. A really interesting chat coming up. Probably one of our longest episodes of the year, uh, but worth it coming into this uh, this break over winter. If you're in the Northern Hemisphere and if you're sitting on a beach somewhere in Australia uh, or in the Southern Hemisphere, then worth your time to really look forward to 2021 and see what's happening in the space in sports technology, in investment and in sports in general. So, Michael Broughton, partner of Acceleration cool. Equity. Welcome to Sports Tech Feed. Great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Delighted to be here. A long time, a long time coming, but glad we're now having the conversation. A long time coming, yes. One of our early guests, Umberto Rigetti, was uh, the original introduction, and that's that seems like moons ago, back in the, the dark days or bright days of 2019. Uh, but here we are, and, and today's all about um, sports investment, so looking at trends within the sports space, um, obviously with a particular focus on technology. So starting off, what do you think will be the biggest trends or changes um, in the sports tech space coming into 2021? See, I don't think there are going to be any radical changes, I'll be honest. Um, I, I think what you're more likely to see is a continuation of 2020 where there will be a an acceleration on using the existing technology. So um, pick a boring one to start with, you know, remote production. Um, if you think about how Prior to 2020, there was lots of umming and erring about, you know, is it going this way? Do we really want to you know, stop having high-tech infrastructure everywhere? And then suddenly, you know, overnight, everybody had to relocate their production facility to their operators' homes. Um, and, you know, you, you saw a much better use of remote cameras, remote production, and, and the like. So um, I think what that, what that has probably helped do is demonstrate to a number of parties in the industry where technology actually is as to and it, its dependability rather than where it was. Um, and I think open people's minds up to, oh, oh, th- there's more we can do with this stuff. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I think that will be helped by the advent of things like 5G. I mean, literally, I've got builders in my house right now and they turned off my Wi-Fi two minutes before I had to call you. Uh, so I'm doing this off my... F- my 5G phone connected to my laptop, connected to my mic, back to you. Um, so we can blame 5G if anything goes wrong. Um, but, you know, I, I think it demonstrates that, you know, 
um, the world has changed, that technology is there, it works, mm. right? We can do this and we can do it at scale. Yes. Right. So I think that's a really important element. Um, it will just accelerate what was happening. I think the other one that to me, you know, I, I've been kind of banging on about this for a decade um, and perhaps I did a really poor job of it um, for, for most of that time. But, you know, no fans in stadiums has meant that everybody's had to wake up to the fact that they didn't actually know who the fans were. Mm. Right. And actually the broadcasters barely know who they are either. Right. You know, because the, the old broadcast model didn't actually give you who was watching what, when and how. Um, so I, I think you, you've seen everyone suddenly going, hang on, I need to know who is in my stadium because if they're not there, I need to you know, still be able to get to them and talk to them. Even more importantly, if something like this ever happens again, how do I communicate to my followers and fans in, in a new way? Because um, it can be done. It's not the same as live. It's not the same as in person. Everyone has to accept that. But I think 2020 has shown people in sport that this whole data concept was, it's been fun and an initial, you know, some people toying with it. Um, actually, there's real value there. Mm. Um, you know, I won't mention my favorite club. Most people know who it is, but it, it took over a month for them to communicate to me. And I'm a season ticket holder. Now, they perhaps had more important things to deal with, like making sure their players and their staff were fit and healthy. But, you know, my near a thousand pounds a year is meaningful to me, should be meaningful to them. And a month into the first lockdown, I'm going, oh, you know, they remember that I existed. Yeah. Um, doesn't stop me being a fan, but that could have happened a lot sooner if they'd actually understood the audience better and been able to start automating some things. Um, so I think um, the biggest trend is just going to be a continued acceleration in the use of technology. Um, I think people have realized it's a friend, not a foe. Um, in terms of our industry. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm excited to see then those incremental changes that you see from the use of tech. You know, I don't think this is necessarily transformative, but, you know, um, perhaps doing what we used to do in person is now going to happen online, um, which will in the future enable us and, and the more pioneering entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs out there to come up with more exciting stuff. Um, and hopefully the minds will be more receptive to that. Yes. I mean, there's no shortage of ideas out there. That's it's the, the thing is, well, is it technology, like is the technology able to do that? And then is there product market fit in the sense of other people that are actually going to be purchasing this from the, the team side, from the sporting property side, from the broadcast side, are they actually going to use any of this stuff? Um, and that for me, is, it's kind of this it's shift from gimmick or, or nice to have to core part of the business um, in terms of what they're doing. And it, interesting, we're talking to someone from the, um, from the LA Dodgers, Carolyn Morgan, who does a lot of their, um, their, their social engagement. Obviously, they won the World Series this year. Um, but she was talking about taking uh, fan activations in the stadium to the home and why, it's, why have we never done that? Why have we only done kind of the halftime show for someone in the stadium? Why have we never done that for the millions of fans that will never, ever make it to, to Dodger Stadium? So it's kind of that, it, almost this um, a mindset shift, I think, 
as much as it is new technology, uh, tech, new technical capabilities. Right, and and I think you know, uh, and I said this a few times during my my days at FIFA is, uh, technology isn't always the solution. Mm. Right, you know, um, I think I'm mistaken for a technophile. Right now, I I went out and grabbed the the, the new iPhone mainly because mine was three years old and I wanted something fresh. But what I like about technology is when it enables us to do things more effectively. Um, and that primarily, is, let's say, in, in sport, is communicating to your consumer. So um, if the world has changed, how do we still speak to them? Mm. Oh, they're on a tech platform, right? So we need to use that, right? It's not that I want to, want to be figuring out how to use Instagram. It's that we need to be on Instagram, right? Even if that doesn't actually make us any money, we still need a connection in an, at an emotional touch point. Um, but I think your, your, your point early in that, in your comments there were about product market fit. So again, COVID created product market fit for remote production. There's another you know, couple of businesses I really like, like uh, React2, which is partnered with uh, Eleven Sports and Scenic, which is partnered with um, BT. I think these are really cool businesses that I saw three or four years ago and you were sat there going, wow, social watch together, viewing, you know, all sorts of things. And you could see Facebook was dabbling in a kind of watch together style product. You're like, huh, that's really cool. I think, I think that's viable. And then you spoke to the broadcast and like, eh, you know, people watch it at home. I was like, yeah, but they like to be, you know, like we're on WhatsApp and we're on messaging systems, all talking, or we're on Twitter, talking to one another that's demonstrating we still want to be in a social environment whilst mm. watching at home alone. And you could just see deadpan, right? Just nothing. Um, it's like a bad joke on, on a stand up. It just hit a wall and nothing. And then COVID happens and suddenly you're seeing these announcements of, Oh, and you know, scenic is now an integral part of the new BT app. I'm like brilliant. Like absolutely brilliant. Now I wish COVID had never happened. <laughs> uh, I think that goes about saying, you know, the traumas it, it's had for everybody at different levels. Um, but it has literally created product market fit for a number of companies out there who, whose products suddenly enabled broadcasters, direct-to-consumer, whatever it was, to actually engage and, and, and monetize their fans in a different way or just add more value. Mm. Um, so, you know, again, I, I think that goes back to the first question. You know, the product market fit for data is now more important. Right. It, it's suddenly, oh, oh, okay. Um, you know, I, I think um, a trend we will see in the next three or four years will, will be linked to governments wanting to know who is in a venue. Now, I always had this morbid fascination with why do ticketing companies not be able to tell us who's gone into a venue? Right? Because my take was there will be a security event and I, I'll be honest, I thought it would be a terrorist attack on a West End theater or on Broadway, something like that, where the government would turn around and say, how did you not know who was in your venue? Right? And I think actually things like COVID will make governments turn around and say, we need to know who went into a venue, mm. name by name, right? You know, address so we can track and trace if anything happens again. So I can therefore see ticketing businesses having to change their model 
I can see blockchain, therefore, providing a secure format for ticketing companies to identify, I bought the ticket, I gave it to you, Thomas, you then went, but they know that that transaction happened. Mm -hmm. They can trace it. They know you went. They know who you sat next to. They know um, via wayfinding of of, you you going past various points in the stadium who you probably interacted with. And therefore, be able to have a, a system that says, okay, you need to go get tested or, or, or whatever. Um, so again, I think, thankfully, not a, a terrorist attack. Unfortunately, a pandemic will create this, this change in how we operate venues and how we know who they are, which, by the way, you can then turn into a marketing product, right? Now, understanding GDPR and, and making sure everything is compliant and and the like, but you know, I think that that's a, the, the starting point, but saying, if we now know who's in the venue, not just for security, but we know that you know, Michael gave his ticket to Thomas, Thomas might therefore be a fan of us, our team. Thomas, would, would you ever like to come back? Would you like mm. hospitality? Would you like a shirt for your son? Would you, you know, whatever. Um, so again, you know, product market fit that I thought existed two years ago and where I was probably too early, I think has now been accelerated by this experience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, totally agree. There's a couple of things on that thinking about something like nine 11, um, that revolutionized the experience of security, um, in all public places and obviously airports chiefly among them. Um, but things that were thought before that, that, that well, they'll never do this. That's, you know, a bridge too far for the government to start doing this stuff just became commonplace. And then today it just, it's how it is. People understand it's a safety concern. Um, and it really doesn't impact too much on the experience um, because they're getting better at, at, at screening people and all that kind of stuff. So the technology gets better um, to make that more frictionless, same as the, the in-stadium experience, in-venue experience. Um, and you see it culturally, it's, people are responding to it. I mean, my hometown of Melbourne, uh, you go to a pub, you have to scan a QR code and that, that captures your details and then they can contact trace after that. People want to go to the pub. If all I have to do is scan a QR code, I'm pretty happy. You know, one scan of the QR code and I get a pint. It's not really interrupting my, you know, my experience. Obviously, with things like blockchain, you can elevate that around security and 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 the the tracking of it. Um, uh, Johan Krufarina, um, part of the Reimagined Football Initiative, I know something they did last year was a a pilot with a a blockchain uh, resale. So basically, you could resell your ticket on the blockchain and then you had to be within uh, a certain area of the stadium at a certain time and your ticket was enabled. So what it did is it stopped people um, with, you know, black market tickets because you actually had to be there. So you had to be there at the time, you know, within a window, a time window before the game started. Um, So that was about, well, how do we cut out the black market, but also through that process, learn more about who's in the stadium um, and do that on an individual level rather than you or I buying a ticket for our family. Um, that's five tickets, but my you know, three-month-old, my four-year-old, my 12-year-old, my wife and myself uh, are very different consumer profiles. So, oh, we've got five of, you know, Thomas in the stadium um, is different again to, say, the individuals. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I went to the Olympic Stadium in, in London a couple of years back and I took my mother-in-law, my mother and my wife to watch a Robbie Williams concert. Um, and it was great fun. I loved it. I'm a Robbie Williams Robbie's, fan. Robbie's I, great. I'm happy, I'm happy to admit to it. Uh, yeah. But I bought them at a charity auction. So somebody at the, 
has given these four tickets to a charity. The charity has then sold them to me, and I've then distributed it to three others, right? I'm certain they thought that the person who originally bought them went to the venue and they would have had him down or her down as four, four names, right? Like, well, that's just nonsensical. It's mm. just nuts because actually Robbie's missing the opportunity to sell content to four people, right? Now what can he do with that? And I think, you know, again, um, I think you're going to see the, the birth through this of direct to channel, direct to consumer micro channels. Mm. Robbie Williams doesn't need to go on tour. Now, I think he'll still go on tour because he can make a lot of money that way. But he can also now create a direct-to-consumer channel that says, I'm going on tour. Uh, these are the 20 cities I'm going to. If you can't make it, you can tune in. And, of course, it can geo-block and do all these other things. And now he can sell, you know, instead of $100 for a ticket, he can now sell a $50 ticket for an online experience. Right, and if he then does it with a scenic or a reactive, he can then create a, you know, an internal you know watch together experience with you and your family, even if you're stuck in your own home because, in the UK you're in tier three and I'm in tier one and mm. what, you know, whatever it may be, um, but even post COVID, right, he can still sit there and say, well, I can only get to twenty cities on a world tour, but I've got fans everywhere. Why, why would I? not monetize all those other fans. Um, and of course, we're now demonstrating, you know, I thought YouTube did a great job in the UK with, um, I think it was Money Supermarket, um, who put on a number of live concerts. And they even got Robbie to come back to do a take that one. Um, you know, it was, it was Friday concerts with YouTube and compa- mm-hmm. you know, whatever the meerkat was, I can never remember. Um, it, it chips away in my head, but can't remember the brand name um but you know so to me i i, I just i think from a, a sport perspective but an entertainment perspective um the last 12 months are, are going to change some of the the business models um you what is ticketing for an online live concert i don't know mm. i've never had to do it before yeah um i've always done it for a live event yeah. you know in person so um you ha- how do you scale that up? Can you, yeah. can you do a million people tuning in live on a pay-per-view for a Robbie Williams concert? You know, does it need to be 10 million? What's the bandwidth? You know, totally, what's the concurrence? What, you know, a whole bunch of different questions, I think, are gonna, finally going get, to get asked. And for those, those performers, a whole new way to monetize. Mm. Um, and this, to me, is... Um, you know, I go, I've digressed on the music, but if I bring it back to sport, I think the, the, the correlation there is the music industry is about to uncover a new way of making more money, right? And now let's hope they get it right. I think that all this disruption still leads to growth. Yeah. But I don't, I don't believe that disruption has to lead to destruction, right? Um, I am a, a bull on sports. I think there is still more to come. Um, I can again be mistaken for somebody who, you know, a bit of a bear because quite often I post something on LinkedIn that goes, yeah, I think this is wrong or we're not doing well enough here. It's, it's just because I can see the opportunity. Yeah. I, it, it's not because I actually think it's a bad business. I just think we've left too much on the table still and that there's a long way still to go, um, which is why it's fun to be in. 
Um, and quite often it comes back, unfortunately, to technology. Mm. Well, I mean, following up from what you said, the Dua Lipa concert, it was Studio 2054. It was yesterday or the day before on a platform live now, um, had 5 million um, views, which I think they're all paid. Um, I assume there might be some sort of promotions in there, but they were touting it as a, as a big success. And it was really interesting that the, the two biggest things on that platform were sports and, and live, live music. So the, the gorillas are doing some concerts from Hong Kong and a few other things, but um, it, looking at that, it, it's just taking the experience forward. It's not just, um, uh, you know, top of the pops. It's not just someone standing on a stage and you just put a camera in front of them. It is a complete production. And that's something about sports as well is thinking about, well, if this is a completely virtual experience, obviously the broadcast experience, but then how do you take that forwards as well? Things like AR, all that other stuff that you can stack on top of it that makes people feel like if I'm paying for a virtual experience, I am paying for a virtual experience. I'm not just paying for a second rate version of in-person. So it's, it's, which is where, as you said, technology comes in. So um, and also, we're, we're chatting to Paul, the uh, founder of Scenic, next week. So that'll be on the podcast in the next couple of weeks. So we'll, if you've got any questions, you can ask me offline. I'll make sure they're really difficult. I'll throw them a few curveballs. I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of Paul. I'm a okay. fan of Paul. I, I've known him a long time. Uh, and, and, you know, like a lot of entrepreneurs, he's had to show tremendous grit um, and a, a constant upbeat personality to just keep going. Mm. And, and belief in, you know, this is a real product. Um, you know, I, I think, though, my challenge for Paul, like many of the entrepreneurs I've met, is what's the difference between a product and a platform? Right? And most people believe they're building a platform. Where 99% of them are probably building a product. Actually, they might even just be building a feature set that's good for a product. Mm. Now, I think he's built a wonderful product, right? And I think it, it should be bigger and better, and, and I think it will accelerate, and I think you'll do well. Um, and he won't be the only winner in this space. Um, what I'm interested then is, is, you know, particularly if you're aware, I think investors are going to be looking, is they'll look at him and go, that's really cool, but actually it's, it's the platform that it sits on that's most interesting. Um, and I think that, you know, what you've seen with Andrea Rodrizani and, you know, he's obviously been big in sport live now is a play into entertainment mm. and he's kind of taking his experience in the sports industry and saying, hang on a minute, I'm a live broadcaster. I know how to put on a show. Why, why isn't anyone doing this in music? Mm. And there are people, but you know, he's, he's grabbed that medal and gone, okay, I can do this with live fitness and mindfulness and, you know, a kind of semi-play in a space of, say, a tonal mm. um, with like live yoga classes or Peloton-style classes. But at the same time, I have this kind of pinnacle content, this Halo content, like Dua Lipa. I mean, that's yeah. serious Halo. Um, yeah. You drive 5 million people to your platform and they sit there and say, oh, rather than they just come back once a month, here's more content for me on a daily basis. And, you know, look, most of them will drop off. Mm. Right, and they'll come back for the next big concert, whether that's Gorillas or I, I know they did Ellie Goulding for their first one. Um, but you know, I, what I find really interesting is how somebody from outside the space has seen and said, Look, hang on a minute, if I put money behind this and I bring a platform to it, there, there's something there. 
Mm. Right. Um, and I do think perhaps in 2021, you, you've seen it starting with the investors, right? Um, many, lots of investors have created SPACs this year. So um, in the sports space, well, one, there's about 180 SPACs. Can you, um, so which are, I, I, know, I know what a SPAC is, but I'm sure there's some people out there that have read it and maybe haven't, haven't felt like they can ask what a SPAC is. Can you just give us a quick um, definition of a, of a SPAC? Very quick definition is, first of all, it's shorthand for special purpose acquisition company. So all it is, is it is a company that is already listed on an exchange, whether that's the New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, but it can be anywhere, depending on the rules of each exchange. And it's already listed, but it's an empty cash shell. It just has money. So it's had investors put in money. It's had the sponsor who runs it and owns it, put in their own money. And they go and look to buy a company. And then you can call that a reverse listing. So um, the, the biggest one that's being discussed in, in sports at the moment is Fenway Group, uh, which owns Roush, Fenway, NASCAR, obviously uh, the, the greatest baseball team ever in the, in the Red Sox, and an okay football team called Liverpool. Um, and they're talking about an $8 billion uh, valuation. And they would reverse into um, a SPAC, yeah. Uh, the red, the red bird spec. Um, so yeah, that will be a really interesting one to see because it'd be, I think the first time a pure play kind of sports business will go public that way. Um, it's an interesting it in, one because in sports betting, um, and some of the other ones in the space sports. Yeah. So I, I think what you, you said that Thomas is exactly right. So you've seen it happening in sports betting and, and what you've typically seen is SPACs looking at companies that are more likely to actually have 24-7 revenue, right? So they're not dependent on a single event. Um, they actually, you know, so Liverpool operates for basically nine months of the year, but, you know, every three days. Now, Jurgen Klopp complains that they're playing every three days, but, um, you know, that immediately stymies the amount of money they can make. If you're a betting company, there's an event happening all the time around the world. Mm. So there's, there's always a way to make money. So if you're looking to list something, you're more likely to go for a company where you can see it's not dependent on one sport. It's not dependent on one event. It's dependent on something you know, much more consistent. So data companies, um, betting companies, all these, I think, are, are much more likely. And therefore, when you see a sports back raised uh, and they say, we're going to go after X, Y, or Z, uh, most people go, oh, it's gonna go, they're going to go after a team. They might. Um, the, the Red Bull one is interesting because it's actually three teams, right? And mm-hmm. it's also got a, a regional sports network. So they're not dependent on just football or baseball or racing. And the seasons kind of blend, you know, interlock with one another. So actually, you know, that's a much more interesting play than just doing a SPAC to buy Liverpool, mm. right? Where, okay, you're operating for nine months and if you have a bad year, your revenues drop 30% because you're not in a Champions League or you know, whatever it may be. Whereas actually you can smooth that over and have a general trajectory upwards by having multiple companies. Mm-hmm. Um, hence why I think, more stable companies like betting companies are more likely to be um, where a SPAC goes. And why SPACs have a language that says, 
looking at a sports franchise and or a sports media entertainment business because mm. they need a catch-all. Yeah. Right? And actually, you know, I've spoken to a SPAC about investing in a, that was for a, it was a TMT space, you know, media, telecoms, and he went and bought something in 3D plastics, right? Because the money made sense. Mm. So even if they're set up to do sports media entertainment, if they can't find a deal that's worthwhile, they'll go where they can make money because that's what the investors, investors are really looking for is a return on their money. If 3D printing is the way to make money, go for it. Again, it, yeah. it's all it is, is, you know, remote production, right? I mean, ultimately like, oh crap, we can't all go to the same place to build it. Let's, let's you know, print it. Um, to me, a smart move, just not close to what they were looking for. Um, but I think you'll see in, in 2021, you know, a lot of SPACs have 12, 18 to 24 months to buy a company, right? And then they have to return the money that's held in escrow back to the original investors. No one wants to do that. So um, the ones that all got set up this autumn, in 12 months time next autumn, there's going to be an awful lot of pressure from the sponsors to not give the money back and they will start doing deals. Yeah. Right. Now some, like the bet genius one was acquired within, I think three months of the SPAC mm. being created. Some will be quick. Uh, others will keep looking, keep looking and they'll set their bar really high. Like we want only the best companies. And as time goes by that, that, that standard just drops right slowly, but surely until they're like, look, you know, if we give our money back, we spent two years, we've earned nothing. We've lost our money that we put in. So why don't we buy the 3D plastics company we saw where we can make money anyway? As long as we get the vote and it makes economic sense, we'll be fine. Um, do you, do but I do think in 12 months, we're going to see a, an interesting number of acquisitions happening. Do, do you think it's going to be more than roll-ups as opposed to like the big, you know, Fenway, like we're just going to buy this one massive um, entity that has all these different areas within sports, media, entertainment, or do you think it's going to be, they get to the point where they're like, we can't, we can't get that one big marquee acquisition. Let's get 10 of these companies within, say, sports technology, roll them up into something new. Um, is that more likely to happen? Because certainly that's something that a lot of founders are out there searching for, for money. And, and with the maturity of sports technologies and industry, it's getting to the point that you need, you need to look for acquisitions and roll-ups rather than just small, you know, small check sizes. So interestingly, so in 2018, I looked at founding my own SPAC with a, a few partners to do a roll-up. Yeah. Um, so the question is, um, you need to spend 80% of the raised capital on your first acquisition. So if you raise 100 million, your first acquisition must at a bare minimum be 80 million. Your investors though, want you to be spending, if you raise 100, they want you to spend between 300 to 500. If you also raise a pipe, which is a private investment in public equity, it's kind of private equity money coming into a public entity. Um, then they want you to be spending that 100 million turning into something that's 800 million, right? So th there's, there's some really interesting dynamics that play there where to get your return on your investment, you, you need to go for something bigger. So um, what a SPAC does do, it definitely does allow for roll-ups because they don't want to just deploy the money up front. 
they, they, they're backing you as a management team because they want to do multiple acquisitions. They want to give you serious money to play. Um, so I think you will probably see a couple of people try to look at it as we'll buy a big football club and then try to replicate what City did. Yeah. Um, I think people will try that without really understanding the economics around the City deals. Um, and I, I've always looked at the City transactions as um, this is soft politics at its best. This is the government of Abu Dhabi getting in good graces in mm. a whole host of cities and countries. Um, going into Mumbai, I'm sure, I'm sure there was a conversation. I mean, I, I have no proof, but I'm sure there was a conversation between the two governments mm. as to, you know, we'd really like to invest in a club in India and da, da, da. Um, so I think um, consolidation will happen. Um, I would be more excited by, I think, the tech consolidation because I think there are too many products, going back to our earlier conversation, and not enough platforms in sport. So if someone came along and started with a decent-sized tech business and then started acquiring a number of products, um, one, I think it'd be richly deserved for a lot of entrepreneurs. Mm. Um, and two, I think, um, could create some very powerful entities. I think there's a classic example of um, GFM, I think it's GFM Private Equity, who did a roll-up that ended up becoming Repucon, which then got sold to Nielsen. Um, and they made good money along the way. And that was a classic roll-up. Uh, lots of sponsorship agency um, consulting businesses. Um, you know, I think it's going to be more interesting in the, the tech play rather than say a consulting business. Yeah. Um, I'm fascinated by George Pine's investment, uh, in two circles, great business. And now, um, I'm forgetting their name for a second, but you know, the, the sponsor uh, yeah. just required the right. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and you know, I, I think it, it, it's very interesting play. Um, I'm not a hundred percent convinced it's the right play. Um, but that's, that's, you know, I, I think though it's two sides of the same coin. We, we both believe in the value of data. We may have slightly diverge on how you best capture that data and how you best capture that value. Um, I have no doubt that George is going to make money out of that deal, by the way, mm. no doubt. Right. Um, I've had the pleasure of having dinner with the man and, and a few meetings with him and he's super bright. He gets it better than 99% of us. Um, so if, if he thinks it's worthwhile, it, it's probably worthwhile. Um, my tactic probably would have been slightly different. Um, I would probably gone after a, a, a data platform um, and pulled it together in a different way. But um, thankfully he is demonstrating also there's value in data where I think he's right. And why I think Two Circles is a great first acquisition was it's still in an education cycle, right? And Two Circles, amongst others like Seven League and other companies around the world, have been spending an awful lot of time educating the sports industry on the value of data and then what you need to capture and then what to do with it. Mm -hmm. And particularly on this side of the Atlantic, there is more resistance to hiring data scientists and you know, teams of um, within a new data and BI kind of context to really understand what's going on. 
Um, so if you can outsource it to a two circles and the like, and then you can outsource them to not only look at it, but then figure out how you package that up and sell it. I get that. Um, I do think we're going to end up more in a world though, where as we embrace data more, it becomes a commodity and you need a tech platform that can kind of pull it all together. Cause you're going to have so many data sources. Yeah. Um, what does it all mean? What's it, what's real, what's not. And speaking to a, an old friend yesterday, we don't even know all the questions to ask yet. Mm. Right. So you need to capture a lot of data. And in five years, someone's going to ask a question that you and I have never thought of and go, Oh, Oh, that's where the money is. Yeah. <laughs> well done. Um, which is, which is fascinating because the, the data revolution and I mean, it, it always comes back to, to Moneyball. You've got a, you know, it's not a sports technology or sports analytics analogy if you don't mention Moneyball. I always say that it's the equivalent of the, um, my company is the Uber 4X. Um, you just say it's the Moneyball for whatever. Um, so, but, you know, Billy Bean, um, obviously revolutionary impact on the, on the industry and continues to, to have that with, um, uh, his involvement in, in Redbird and, and a few other things. But uh, I will say that from a sports science point of view, data, tech, analytics has been at the forefront long before the business side has, has, has caught up with it, which is so fascinating that within one, you know, one, one building, one business, if you look at that um, for a sports team, you have this kind of very forward sports science approach, um, but then the front office is run like a small family business um, where, where it just doesn't, just that, that culture of being data forwards. And we talked to Moon Javay, Chief Data Officer of the, um, uh, sorry, Chief Strategy Officer of the San Francisco 49ers. Um, and he talked about their process. It's about eight years in the making from where they got to this point. Like eight years ago when he came on board, they were starting to think about, all right, data, business intelligence, all that kind of stuff. Let's build a team. Um, so it's certainly a long time in the making, even to get to almost the starting line for a lot of teams. Right. And I, I think I agree with you. There's, there, there's, a, there's been a, a gross disconnect between what people have done for on the field performance against what they've done with off the field performance. Having said that, and knowing enough people who run football clubs, they always sit there and say, look, if I've got a bad product, no one's coming anyway. Mm. Right? So um, I get why they're, they're, the money first went on getting the data analytics for the players. And I, I think there's still a long way to go on that. Um, and I'm intrigued as to where that goes in terms of who owns what data. That's going to be an interesting thing in the next three to five years. I think is going to really... Do the players own the data? Do the data companies own it? Is it public domain? You know, where where does that go? Can it be sold separately as been, well? Can it, yeah, can it and be where I've been confounded is if you've mentally accepted that data is important to perform on the field, when you then meet to the team off the field and there feels like there's a reluctance to go for data, they don't believe it, they don't understand it, rather than just we don't get given the budget that they do. We'd love you. We just don't get the budget that the, the, the performance side do. Well, then if I'd had those conversations for the last 10 years, I go, well, okay. I, yeah, I get that. How do I help you get the budget? How do I, you know, how do I tease that out of your, your, your top dogs? Whereas I think for a long time it was, no, 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 we don't, it, that's not necessary. 
In 2008, I quite literally had a conversation with somebody at a top four Premier League club. And it's like, I asked the question, what's your CRM system? And the response was, we don't have CRM, we're sold out. Now, I know 12 years later, they're in a completely different place, that business, completely different place. Right? Their analytics are top notch for, for the you know, off the field stuff. But it was fascinating in 2008, you know, I'm sitting there going, hey, you know, we're doing a ticketing, you know, job for you. What's your, what's your CRM? Sold out. Why would I need CRM? Mm. Like, well, what about the people who aren't in your stadium? Like, as a starting, your Paul Barber, when he was at Tottenham, I remember him having a conversation of, I don't need to think about the Northeast of America yet. I haven't even figured out North London. Yeah. You know, like, okay, I've got 30,000 season ticket holders at Tottenham, but... Who are the other 30,000 who want to be season ticket holders? Oh, now we set up a membership program. Great. And that's the first bit. Now, but what's the other 100,000 in London that are, oh, now let's think about the UK. Now then, okay, as you said, it's an eight-year journey, mm. right? Now, hopefully, technology is going to speed that up these days. But what that will mean is you need an owner who is committed to that longer process. Um, unfortunately, in terms of longer processes, I'd love to carry on, but if I don't go pick up my kids in a minute, uh, <laughs> my wife will divorce me for leaving my kids in a cold place at school. Okay, um, well, so that will I've we'll, had, a, we'll wrap I've it had there. a great time talking too much. Yes, no, that's always a good sign. And, and before you go, it's a question we ask, well, I guess, what is your favorite sporting moment of all time? Um, that's that's really hard. That's really hard. Um, I have a couple that just, for me, really stand out. Uh, 2002, Brazil winning the World Cup. I grew up in Brazil. Um, I'm a massive Brazil fan. I flew out for the semifinal. I didn't get to go to the final, but um, I, I'm, I'm soul genuinely soul-destroyed when Brazil lose. Um, so to see them win the World Cup in 2002, um, and I went in 98 to the final when they lost. Uh, that was just a remarkable evening. I'm a mm. huge Chelsea fan. I was there when they won the Champions League. Um, that was just breathtaking. And, you know, I'm a, I wanted to be a golf pro. And I remember watching Tiger as an amateur and then watching him do things that I dreamt to do and he was physically doing and so I think, you know, that, that chip, that famous chip at Augusta, yep. watching every one of his majors, I never missed a major. And then, you know, last year when he won the Masters, that, you know, I think the best bit of TV I've ever seen in sport is the commentators didn't talk for like four minutes. It was unbelievable. They just didn't talk. He, he, he held the putt and the commentators just let the emotion wash. Mm. And that was so powerful. Um, so powerful. So I, I'd say those three really stand out. But you know, I'm I'm a sports fanatic. I mean, I've been lucky to go to Super Bowl and um, a bunch of major events where you've seen humans perform amazing, amazing feats before your eyes. Um, so you know, London Olympics 2012 got to go to a bunch of events. None specifically stand out, but the London Olympics. Oh. Yeah. 
what an event and, what and that, an event so, that comes back to why we're both in this you know why we're not off doing 3d plastics or something else it's because what this is 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 what it does to people at a, a kind of a deeply human level um is incredible so yeah. thank you so much for your time um go get your kids before they're, they're trapped in the cold london weather uh, apologies from sports sick feed to them and, and your wife but it's been great to have this un- uninterrupted time and um thank you very much for having me there you have it that was michael broughton partner at acceleration equity uh always good to chat to, with michael and as we mentioned uh, it's been quite a ways in the making uh, I think Umberto Rigetti, one of our earlier guests, introduced us about a year ago uh, on a very rainy night in London. And then over 12 months and really a lifetime ago in 2019. And here we are at the end of 2020, facing the brave new world 2021. And uh, as they say, it can only get better from here. The only way is up. So really excited to see what's happening uh, into the next year. As Michael said, some really cool technology coming in, some really cool technology that's been around for a while is being embraced. And really COVID has, in a lot of ways, developed product market fit for existing companies out there. I've been your host, Thomas Loams. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Stay safe over the holiday period. And if you'd like to go back and look at some of our previous episodes, you can do that on sportstechfeed.com or also on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be back here same time, same place next week. Looking forward to seeing you then.